Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Latin American History Podcast, Episode 27, Nicolas Stiavando and Early Hispaniola, Part 2. We ended last episode by talking about the encomienda system. As you can probably guess, this system was not popular amongst the Taino. Although we have seen that generally they would well and truly be on the receiving end of hostilities, they did mount some resistance. The most serious revolt was led by a man named Enriquillo. From the Taino point of view, Enriquillo's revolt is one of the few encouraging stories of the era. Now we are skipping ahead a bit here, the revolt began in 1519, but I want to cover the early years of the colony comprehensively in this episode, rather than jump back to it later. As well as being a good story, the revolt also sheds light on the dynamics of the colony, and hopefully illuminates it a bit better. Enriquillo was the grandnephew of Anacaona, the cacique who was captured by Ovando last episode. He himself was one of the most powerful caciques on the island. He was, however, raised within the colony and taught to read and write Spanish, as well as the principles of Christianity by monks. This is where he got his Spanish name. Enriquillo and his people were assigned under the encomienda system to an elderly Spanish landowner named Francisco de Valenzuela, and he remained there working for Valenzuela for five years. The two apparently had a fairly cordial relationship, despite the social situation they existed in. But this all changed when Valenzuela died, and his son took control of the estate. Soon after inheriting, the son apparently stole Enriquillo's horse, and then raped his wife. Enriquillo actually went through the legal process of making a complaint about this, taking it first to the local magistrate, and then all the way to Santo Domingo. Being a Taino, however, he was ignored, and even threatened for having the cheek to try and engage with the colonial society in any way except providing labour. Enriquillo was a fascinating character, because he was well and truly caught between two worlds. On the one hand, he had his noble native blood, and on the other, his Spanish upbringing. He clearly had an understanding of how the colonial society and its legal system worked, and a willingness to accept it. He discovered, however, that no matter how educated and enthusiastic he was, he would never be accepted by the Spanish when push came to shove. After these events, he decided that despite the near certainty of an unhappy end, he would stop trying to live his life with one foot in both worlds. He would stop trying to be accepted by Spanish society. Instead, he would embrace his Taino culture. 
This is the story, at least, as told by De Las Casas. The details of this part of Enriquillo's life are a little hazy, and as you will see when I introduce him properly, De Las Casas certainly had an axe to grind, and a motive for portraying Enriquillo as a noble hero. We can be fairly confident, however, that this is a reasonably accurate account of Enriquillo's early life. If the specifics of the story of the horse are incorrect, something similar most likely happened, as the previously compliant Enriquillo took off with around 40 of his followers into the mountains. From here he launched a guerrilla campaign, beginning with an attack on four gold-carrying Spaniards, killing them all and taking their gold. A revenge party was sent out, but this ended in disaster, as nine more Spaniards were killed in the resulting skirmish. Despite this early success, for the next few years the rebels kept largely to themselves, only occasionally coming down to raid Spanish settlements. During this time, however, Enriquillo's camp grew, and soon he had several hundred followers, including mestizos and escaped African slaves. The Spanish tried harder and harder to track down the rebels, but they were unable to do so. This was a classic guerrilla war, and the Taino used their local knowledge to devastating advantage. If Enriquillo's dual upbringing did not provide him with an advantage in colonial society, now it certainly helped, as this local knowledge was combined with an understanding of his Spanish opponents. Spaniards who saw his camp firsthand reported that amongst other measures to keep their location a secret, the tongues of the chickens had been cut out to stop them from crowing. Dogs were used for hunting, but they were kept in one especially remote settlement, so that their barking would not give away the location of his camps. He also moved around a lot, and split his forces between multiple camps. Soon, other rebel bands were joining forces with him, although, as the hills started to fill up with those fleeing the colony, this actually made Enriquillo's life harder in some ways, as they began to step on each other's toes. Peace talks were attempted in 1528, but they soon broke down due to a lack of trust. So, the stalemate continued for another five years, with the Spanish unable to properly exploit the island due to the threat of raids, but the rebels equally unable to live a peaceful life. While they were able to challenge the Spanish and evade capture, they were never going to expel the colonists from the island, and Enriquillo knew that. When the Spanish finally tracked him down again with peace terms, he accepted, and the revolt came to an end. Enriquillo would be pardoned, and allowed to live with his followers unmolested in the mountains. In return, however, he agreed to hand over any Tainos or escaped slaves who attempted to join him in the future. The revolt had lasted 14 years. Despite distrust on both sides to begin with, the peace held, and Enriquillo even travelled to Santo Domingo to sign the treaty in 1534. Although he would die of natural causes soon afterwards, the right of his children to inherit the land awarded to him was respected. There will be many more rebellions and acts of resistance by the indigenous people of Latin America, but Enriquillo's achievements stand out. It will be another 200 years until the Spanish are forced to make a treaty with another undefeated group of indigenous rebels. 
It wasn't just the indigenous people who took the chance to resist this new socio-economic system into which they were forced. The Africans did as well. We have seen that many joined Enriquillo if the opportunity presented itself, but they also organised rebellions of their own. Due to the rapidly growing rate of slave importation, they would dwarf the European population on the island. It's estimated that by 1542, there were 30,000 Africans on Hispaniola, and up to 3,000 more who had escaped into the mountains. There were a lot less Spaniards. In 1522, around 20 slaves escaped and started raiding Spanish property. They were all originally members of the Wolof people of Senegal, and so were able to easily coordinate their actions, thanks to sharing a common language and culture. The escapees went from plantation to plantation, attacking Spaniards with machetes and encouraging slaves to join them. As there were lots of Wolof slaves on the island, they seemed to have been fairly successful at this. It didn't last long, however, and the rebellion was soon put down. In the 1540s, a man named Sebastian Lemba threatened to become the African Enriquillo, although he was eventually captured and killed. It's thought that he had several hundred followers at the peak of his rebellion. I found it quite hard to find... I found it quite hard to find detailed information about these rebellions, so unfortunately I can't go into more detail. The rebellions happened not because of ambition, but due to desperation caused by the terrible life of a slave. This is best illustrated by another African named Diego del Campo, who once he had established himself as a feared rebel leader, approached the Spanish and offered to help them track down others in return for a pardon. You could interpret this as the act of a self-serving man, but most likely it was the only way he could achieve a life better than that of a slave or a man on the run. I don't think his actions were calculated. Instead, he just had very few options. And when one came along, he had no choice but to take it. At the end of last episode, I said that we would be looking at some of the new exploration which was taking place during Evando's rule. As I came to write this episode, however, I realised that this was a far bigger and more interesting topic than I'd thought. I thought that I could neatly separate off a couple of early voyages, but it's just not possible. There were several trips which took place, and several interesting characters involved in them. Because of this, the subject will have to wait. Over the next few episodes, we will give it all the attention it deserves, rather than trying to condense it down to fit into this one. Instead, I'm going to use this opportunity to properly introduce a man who I keep referencing. Bartolomé de las Casas is a fascinating figure, as he contradicts the image of the greedy and ruthless Spaniard personified by men like Ovando. He is, however, a complex figure, rather than a clear-cut moral hero. He's also one of our best primary sources for this era, having witnessed the growth of the colony from close to its beginning, and having written extensively about it. De las Casas was born in Sevilla, in the south of Spain, in the year 1484. His family were merchants, and would have been fairly well off. They were well known in Sevilla, and could even count city mayors amongst their ancestors. The family was said to have arrived from France a couple of centuries earlier, when the city was first taken by the Spanish. 
There are sources which suggest that this was actually a cover story, and the family were converso Jews, but the evidence for this is flimsy. As a child, Bartolome's life would have been comfortable, and he was afforded access to education. This education was religious in nature, and he is said to have decided to become a priest fairly early on in life. He was sent to university to undertake the necessary training for this, and by all accounts he was an excellent student. He spoke Latin, and it was the power of his speaking, in both Latin and Spanish, which was said to be a particular talent. He was able to make impassioned and convincing arguments, with one contemporary saying, compared to him, Homer's Ulysses was inert and stammering. Besides his studies, another event which possibly influenced him in his early years was Columbus's triumphant return from the Americas after his first voyage. On his way to meet the king and queen, Columbus passed through Sevilla and probably inspired in many bystanders an interest in the new world. He also brought some Tainos back with him, so perhaps Bartolome caught a glimpse of one of them at this early stage. His father's trading activities took him to Hispaniola, and he accompanied Columbus on his second trip there. While in the New World, his father won trading rights, and also brought a Taino boy back with him. He gave the Taino to Bartolome as a gift, but as we know, Isabella was firmly against Columbus's move to bring enslaved Tainos to Spain. And when Bobadilla went out to take up his position as governor, those who survived, including the one given to De Las Casas, were taken back to the island. At the age of 18, Bartolomé followed his father over to Hispaniola, arriving in 1502. Here he lived for the next few years on his father's estate, as well as being given land of his own. This meant that he was part of the encomienda system, admittedly before it had been formalised by the lords of Burgos, and that he had Tainos who worked his land for him. He also found employment helping to ensure that Spanish troops were properly provisioned, and this took him on some of Ovando's expeditions of pacification. It's said that on these expeditions, Bartolomé was no better and no worse than anyone else when it came to the brutality which took place. It seems that he and his family did well during these early years of the colony. They had got in early, and already had the capital to make a good go of it. Unlike some other colonists who gambled everything they had on finding gold, and had to build their farms from scratch with no help, except of course from that of any Tainos they could acquire, the de las Casas family had the resources to begin shipping things back to Spain immediately. They had some of the best land, as they were among the first to ask for it, and their connections probably helped them in the way that connections always do. In 1506, Bartolomé returned to Spain, a richer man than when he had left. Once there, he completed his training, and went to the Vatican to be ordained a priest. He managed to get a private audience with the Pope to discuss the chances of converting the Taino. Once this was done, he returned to Hispaniola, accompanying Diego Columbus, and he set about converting the Taino. At this point in his life, he already had a social conscience. But, like most of his contemporaries, and thanks to his devotion to the Church, he subscribed to the view that the reductions were the best way of approaching relations with the Taino.
By having them work, learn Christianity and European culture, they were being protected from the worst colonists and their souls were being saved. This was the best thing for them, and so he continued to possess his own Tainos who worked on his land. The next few years, however, were formative for him. He heard the sermon of Montesinos and grew more and more disillusioned by how the colonial world was shaping up. It took some time, but in 1514 he renounced the ownership of Tainos and started using his religious platform and social standing to denounce the encomienda. They say that as you get older, often you get more conservative, but for De Las Casas, the opposite is true. It was a slow process, but his writings get more and more radical. At this stage, however, while still being much more sympathetic to the Taino than most, he wasn't as sympathetic to humanity as a whole as he would be later. He will change this position, but in order to save the Taino from their current situation, he advocated the use of African slavery. It's hard to say how much impact this had, but some think that this position may have greatly encouraged the institution. Knowing that real changes and the end to the encomienda system would not come from inside the colony, in 1515 de las Casas returned to Spain and managed to get an audience with King Ferdinand. Although taking a look at the bigger picture, things were not going to get better, de las Casas did win what would have seemed like important concessions on this trip. A new colonial position was created, the protector of the Indians, and de las Casas was its first holder. The duties associated with it were to report back to the Crown about the plight of the Taino and to represent them in any debates on relevant policy. He also managed to get the governorship of the colony changed. Diego Columbus had replaced Ovando, having conducted a number of court battles in which he argued that his father Christopher and his descendants had been awarded this right in perpetuity. He had been in charge for nine years, and although he will be back again for another four, his rule was interrupted, as de las Casas managed to get three friars of the Hieronymite order put in charge of the colony. The friar governors would set about reforming the colony, and confiscating the lands of some of those identified as being the worst abusers of the Taino. They did not, however, go as far as de las Casas wanted. All this talk of being nice to the Taino, and giving up an important source of labour, was not going down well amongst the colonists. De las Casas was perhaps the most unpopular man on Hispaniola, and at one point he had to seek sanctuary from a mob in a monastery. The governors were aware that they too were not overly popular, and so they were constrained by the hostility to reform. De las Casas grew fed up with their perceived lack of action, and eventually he fell out with them completely. He returned to Spain once again in 1517 to report back to the crown and to lobby for new policies. We will leave him there for now, but de las Casas is not finished by a long shot. Now the title of this episode is Nicolas de Ovando and Early Hispaniola, and with a few exceptions my intention was not to take things further than his rule. That was back when I thought that this would all be one episode, and I would be talking about exploration right now, instead of the three friars who governed after the guy who governed after Ovando. 
So seeing as we have dealt with quite a few things which took place in the decade or so after Ovando's rule, I may as well quickly outline how it ended, and Diego Columbus's first spell in charge. That way we will know what was going on within Hispaniola up to around 1520, and hopefully to you the place will be a lot more colourful and detailed, thanks to this extended stop there. This will then allow us to jump backwards, to look at what was happening in parallel outside of the island. What has become obvious to me in my research and episode planning is that an enormous amount of activity was taking place in these decades. The Spanish were swarming around the Caribbean and the coasts of the mainland which surround it. I have drawn a line at 1520, the time frame which is covered by this episode, and it looks like it will take three more episodes to bring us up to speed with all the exploration and attempts at conquest which took place up until this time. Stopping at 1520 also sets us up nicely for an episode which will follow these and which will deal with the situation back in Spain. Around then, there are going to be some big changes on the peninsula. Anyway, so let's finish off Evando's story and have a little look at Diego Columbus. Nicholas de Evando's massacring and enslaving, while effective and no doubt popular amongst the colonists, was raising a few eyebrows. We already know that there was some objection to this strategy, thanks to the Sermon of Montesinos and his ability to bend the ear of the monarchy once he'd returned to Spain. We also know that Queen Isabella had a bit of a conscience herself, having told Columbus off for his Taino slave shipment. Well, she died around this time, more on that in the upcoming Spanish episode, and one of her last wishes was said to be that Ferdinand recall Ovando and have him account for his actions. Ferdinand did this, and in 1509, Ovando arrived back in Spain. He lost his governorship, but not much else. He kept all the property he bought back, and did not face any other punishment. This was a stroke of luck for him, or perhaps an implicit reward for getting the colony up and running economically. This may have been the main thing in Ferdinand's mind. He did not get much of a chance to enjoy his luck, however, as he died in 1511, less than two years later, at the age of 50. He was, of course, replaced by Diego Columbus, perhaps just so that Diego would stop bothering the court about the rights awarded to his father. In truth, his rule was not too eventful, and there isn't much exciting to say about it. He built the governor's mansion, which today is still one of the most impressive colonial buildings in Santo Domingo. It was also on his land that the Wolof slave rebellion, which we mentioned earlier, is said to have started, but this was in his second stint as governor, after the time frame we're covering here. Under his rule, there was also some activity external to the island of Hispaniola. That is what we'll cover in the next episodes. After nine years, he was recalled, and the three friars were put in charge. He spent the next few years in Spain, engaging in yet more legal battles, before being sent back out to Hispaniola to replace the friars who had replaced him. It's here that we will leave things for today. Thanks for listening to the Latin American History Podcast. You've been listening to the Latin American History Podcast, written and recorded by Max Sargent. For more information, visit the website, www.maxsargent.com slash thehistoryoflatinamerica. And that's spelt M-A-X. Mm-hmm.
S-E-R-J-E-A-N-T. If you have any comments or questions, feel free to get in contact at History of Latin America Podcast at gmail.com. You can also find the Facebook page by searching for the Latin American History Podcast. The Twitter handle is at History Latin AM. And if you've liked the show, you can help out by leaving a review on iTunes. Alternatively, if you visit the website, you'll see that each episode is accompanied by relevant photos. Most of these are my own, taken during my time in Latin America. All these photos and more are available to purchase as prints at my Etsy shop. You can find this at www.etsy.com slash photo. That's spelt www.etsy.com slash M-A-X-S-E-R-J-E-A-N-T photo. Thanks for listening. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.